Chapter 29, Burn the Flames. It was like a fucking movie. I took off my shirt, wrapped it around my fist, and punched through the glass. I stood in her kitchen perfectly still. I didn't even breathe. I listened for dogs or neighbors or law enforcement types who might not understand. I wasn't sure if my hands were shaking from the perpetual IV of caffeine and nicotine or the foul cheeseburger I ate in Sacramento or the sudden realization that I was standing in her place. Thy canopy is dust and stones. I'd parked my car a block away. I tried without success to estimate the hours I had been awake while I sat on the bus stop bench across the street from her apartment and smoked a cigarette. She had lived on the first floor of a tiny building, maybe four units total, on Silver Lake Boulevard. It was four o'clock in the morning. There were many bouquets of daisies littering the steps that led to the temporary particle board door the cops had installed in lieu of the one they'd kicked in. There were cards and notes and cut-out red paper hearts and flickering candles all coming to an abrupt stop where the crime scene tape began. I imagined the parade of handsome actors and musicians and writers pulling up in their new cars and solemnly walking to her door with their ribbon and crepe paper wrap tributes to a remarkable yet peculiar girl they once loved, only to find a half dozen others had done the same. I smiled. I had always taken her daisies after her shock treatments. I told her they were her favorite, and with her crippled memory she was in no position to argue. The truth was it was all I could afford. When I got out of my court-appointed treatment center, there were two dozen daisies waiting in the room at the halfway house I was assigned to, a card with two X's taped on it, no return address. I had heard about her boyfriends, of course. People talked, and I pretended not to care, or be hurt, or give a shit, or a rat's ass, or a flying fuck. I was protecting myself. Whether she looked great or she looked like how, I didn't want to know. I wanted her to be fine, but not necessarily happy, not ecstatically so anyway. I wanted her to be like me, a little empty. I had gambled today on the theory that her closest neighbors might be staying elsewhere for a couple days. The morbidity of their living situation would have driven them to the comfort inn or a well-to-do relative's place for a spell. If your building is old enough, the odds are pretty good that you're separated from suicides and murders by just a few inches of plaster. Her landlord would be put out, of course, but cleanup would be a minimum. Eventually, someone would rent the place and the shivers or goosebumps you get from living next door would fade with time. Maybe she would attain local legend status and neighborhood kids might dare one another to peek into her window or consider any cat or crow spotted near the property to be her supernatural familiar. She would have liked that. I lit a match. I couldn't risk switching on the lights. My mouth tasted like a cat box. The refrigerator was covered with cave etchings, stick figures with orange hair and magic wands. There were dozens of photographs held in place with magnetic letters, her smile impossibly big as if her face would tear in half. In each picture, she was with a child with an equally preposterous grin, usually with her arm draped over their shoulder. The children could have been four or five or ten years old for all I knew, mostly girls and each moppet more adorable than the next. 
I touched her face in each one until the match expired. And death's pale flag is not advanced there. I cracked the door and reached in for water only to find juice boxes and pudding cups. There was a ceramic mug on the counter. It boasted that the owner was in fact the greatest violin teacher in the world. It was officially presented to her in the guise of a birthday or Christmas gift, I imagined, and once in her possession I knew she would never drink coffee or tea from anything else, ever. She would beam with pride and think of Emma or Allison or Jason or whoever bestowed her with that honor every morning. I filled and drained that cup three times from the sink and lit another match. I knew there would be no food in the refrigerator. I knew the contents of her stomach would be saltine crackers, pills, and alcohol. I knew she would weigh next to nothing. I knew it had been just a matter of time. We, well, she, had talked about it often. The only thing I didn't know was why now. At the end of any road trip, nature calls, but after consuming a dizzying amount of truck stop high-octane piss coffee, nature insists, practically begs. I felt my way through the darkness to her bathroom. There were two or three inches of water in the bathtub. Submerged in that water was an object that I couldn't quite make out from my vantage point in front of the toilet. Was it moving? Did I see tiny fins, or was the flickering light and my lack of sleep fucking with me? I held a St. Jude Sacred Heart candle in one hand and my cock in the other. I shook off the tardy drops of pee and buttoned up before approaching the tub with caution. It fluctuated between inanimate and aquatic. It was black. It grew a tail and snout and then collapsed in on itself, becoming ridged and flat. I rubbed my eyes with my thumb and forefinger. I got down on my hands and knees and placed the candle on the ledge of the tub. I rested my chin on the cool porcelain and fixed my gaze on it. I was prepared for a hasty retreat in case it lunged at my face, but it remained motionless. As my eyes adjusted to the scant light, I realized there was a word printed on it. Four white letters. I quickly reached in and grabbed it. Dell. I set her waterlogged laptop on the tile floor and fished out her cell phone. She had cut off all communication, eliminating the possibility of return or remorse or change of heart. No knights in shining armor, please. She was ensuring there would be no cries for help that this time would be the last time. I used her toothbrush. The words, it's okay, were written in the corner of the mirror in red lipstick. I'd changed my policy about opening strange medicine cabinets. They are full of secrets and precipice, like going through someone's wallet or reading their mail. I will admit that I looked at this one longingly, though. It's a strange phenomenon, that of staring past your own face and coveting a pharmaceutical mystery on the other side of the glass. I watched myself say the words, take one tablet by mouth as needed. I was taken aback by my reflection. I knew I would look tired, but I was surprised by how old I had become. The lines that used to only reveal themselves in the harshest of broad daylight were now clearly visible by candle. I put the palm of my hand on the mirror and leaned on it as I spit into the sink. I knew that pulling open that magnetized latch could, at best, divulge a decade of secrets she had accumulated or, at worst, 
be the first step to me becoming a danger to myself and others. We all have things about us that are better left unknown, and it was nice to have at least one pure, sweet memory. I spit again and put the toothbrush in my back pocket as a souvenir. She had lived in stark contradiction, her face and her guts. The kitchen was awash in turquoise and bright red curtains. There were music stands and brightly colored notebooks and crayons and a life where Clementine and Do Remy were played over and over and over again. This was her smile and clear, bright eyes. The bedroom was dark and musty with the kind of thick curtains that the daylight cracks through like a laser, making sea monkeys dance in its brash golden beams. These particles that darted back and forth, dust, spores, lint, Chaos, bad thoughts, muted screams. These were what rattled between her hip bones, barely contained by a thin layer of waxen skin. When I pushed open the door, I was relieved to find that she had made it easy for me. She knew I would gravitate toward her bed, but I was wrong. What appeared to be stacks and stacks of journals was in fact sheet music covering her mattress Huge piles of it, neither alphabetized nor organized by genre, coated in a thin layer of dust. I grabbed a few sheets off the top of the pile in blue. Chopin. The next pile, Bye Bye Birdie. The next, something by Frank Zappa. The pages spilled off the foot of the bed. I could tell it hadn't been slept in in months. In the corner were a sewing machine and a filing cabinet bursting with patterns. Unlike the sheet music, the patterns were uniformly organized, all doll clothes, mostly Halloween costumes. Each outfit was stored in a large Ziploc bag and placed neatly into the top drawer of her dresser. The lucky recipient of all this work stood atop the desk in a shimmering black witch outfit. She had shoulder-length red hair and gorgeous green eyes. Just like her mother, I thought. There was an Edward Gorey print hanging on the wall next to the figurine. She always said if she ever had money, she'd buy one. Her desk reflected the potency and frequency of her shock treatments. It served as her nerve center, her base of operations, her frontal lobe, and a testimonial to the length a human would go to keep a secret. There were two boxes of index cards, one marked professional, one marked personal. At the top of her students' cards were the words Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4 p.m. or Mondays at 3 p.m., etc., etc. Then came a name, age, birthday, address, pet's name, favorite food, favorite song, and a note about their progress. At the bottom of each card was the sentence, blank is a very special kid. The cards referring to the adults in her life were less organized, more cautionary. As a general rule, they seemed to serve as a warning system. They contained the usual contact information, but at the bottom of each was a note about the subject's behavior. These were personal insights she couldn't risk disappearing from her conscience. I continued to rummage through the cards, even though I didn't want the gory details. I didn't want to know who made her heart sing or her panties wet besides me, but I couldn't avert my eyes. The addresses and phone numbers were unimportant. 
I picked out random cards and read the comments at the bottom. Lucy is crazy. Avoid conversations about men. Sean is cute, but he only wants sex. He is not really a big-time record producer. Dr. Jennison will give you better sleeping pills if you flirt with him. You owe Sarah $50. Don't forget to pay her. Vito watched you sort through your undies at the laundromat. Tim C. might be in love with you. Don't go to the store with Sherry. She is a shoplifter. Rick is a son of a bitch. Do not go back. I couldn't help but look myself up. I figured it was a bad idea, but I watched as my fingers flipped through the cards until we got to the H's. There were four phone numbers and a half dozen addresses written down for me. Charlie Hyatt. The Thunderbird Motel. King County Jail. The Milton Lake House. Patient. 4224 Roosevelt Way. 321 Boylston, number 201. 1809 15th Avenue, number 204. Home. The Milton Lake House, work. Charlie made you really happy for a long time. Everything was written in pencil and dismissed with a single line through the middle of each location after I'd moved on. I had eluded police and bill collectors, but I did not live below Carrie Finch's radar. Above the tattered copy of the physician's desk reference, I noticed three envelopes taped to the wall. The first was addressed to her father, the next one to me, and the last simply read, Rocky Erickson, Austin, Texas. I peeled my envelope off and stumbled into the living room. The out-of-place coffee table told me where they found her. It was several feet farther from the couch than what one would consider the usual distance, more than likely moved to make space for the stretcher. It was a large, well-worn, but stylish orange monstrosity from the 60s. I could picture her eyeing it through the window of a hip vintage store in her neighborhood, nervously calculating the amount of paychecks it would take her to save up, knowing that no one on earth could possibly think it was as pretty as she did. That womb of death gorged with the dearest morsel of the earth. The medicine bottles on the coffee table were amber and empty. The liquid in her glass was amber, too. Scotch, just like she always said. When given the option of picking her poison, she would always reply, The Glen Levitt, please. I held the rim of the glass to my lips and inhaled its once familiar sting. I tasted her lipstick with the tip of my tongue. Come, bitter conduct. Come, unsavory guide. And what difference could I have made? Could I have stopped her? Would I have stopped her? Or would I have laid down next to her and held her until she was cold? Here's to my love, O true apothecary. Thy drugs are quick, thus with a kiss I die. I tilted the glass quickly before I could change my mind. It burned just right. I held her last sip of whiskey in my mouth for as long as I could, then swallowed. I was so tired. 
I carefully peeled back the seal of the envelope and took out the letter. A stack of $100 bills fell out and onto the hardwood floor. I unfolded the letter, but my eyes couldn't focus. I lay back on the couch. I stretched out. I placed her letter over my face and sunk into her last stand. I breathed in the ink of a ballpoint pen and the relief of the words she finally got to say. Her arms reached up through the earth, the floor, the upholstery, and wrapped themselves around my chest. She kissed me on the back of the neck, and we closed our eyes. <laughs>